0: Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who, along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening, and enjoy.
1: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 2020 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Andrew Lind. I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan, and I'm pleased to announce, Our panel, Press Any Key to Start, How to Build an Esports Brand. This panel is part of the Business Track, presented by Ticketmaster. Our panelists today are Casey Chafkin, Chief Revenue Officer at Skills, David Higdon, Global Head of Communications Esports at Riot Games, Nicole lapointe Jamison, CEO at Evil Geniuses, and our panel today will be moderated by Saj Charian, partner at Kinetic, which owns Fanatics and RuPaul Group. Our panel will run for about 45 minutes, and then we'll have 10 minutes of Q&A after. You can submit your questions via Twitter using the hashtag #PressAnyKey. And with that, I'll hand it off to Sash. Great, thanks, Andrew.
2: So, welcome to the esports panel. Uh, press any key to start. We will be hearing from three of the esports industry's leaders uh, across teams, game publishers, platform developers for the keys on not just how to build an eSports team, but also an eSports brand. But before we dig in, let's begin with how each of our panelists got their start in eSports. Let's start with Nicole. Now, you entered eSports as an investor with a private equity firm, Peak Six, that specializes in distressed assets. So what was it about Evil Geniuses that was distressing, but yet (laughs) so interesting, uh, that you decided to jump in?
0: Thank you so much. Um, so, I have joined Evil Geniuses a little less than a year ago, um, previously working in private equity. And we, I led a team of people that did diligence on deals in the tech, AR, VR, and gaming space. And we had, eSports was one of those ephemeral types of topics that you see things pop up on, and a lot of the teams in the space weren't really at a maturity level for a private equity-style investor to come in. And then more than a year ago, Evil Geniuses, which is one of the oldest teams in the space, came to us with a very clear ask and very clear looking for guidance and business maturity to help bolster their gaming excellence. So it was a good fit for a more mature later stage investor. We ended up acquiring Evil Geniuses in May. I rolled in full time and haven't looked back since.
2: And how did you make that transition from investor to CEO?
0: Um, Prior to my time working at uh, Peak Six, I actually was on their both deal investment team as well as our operations team. So I worked in multiple distressed asset companies at various altitudes, running small teams to being chief of staff of 700-person organizations. I've always loved leadership and the opportunity to lead a team in a space I cared about um, and really help build and bolster and revitalize a brand was very exciting. So I was Candidly, when we were doing the deal, I was really hoping for a board seat, and the joke's on me. I'm now running (laughs) this organization, but it's been fantastic.
2: So be careful what you uh, wish for, right? (laughs) Um, So I'm going to skip over to to Casey. Now, Casey, a decade ago, you were here at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference as an MBA uh, from that other business school across the river. Um, How did you get from sitting in the audience to getting up here on stage? Uh, Can you sort of take us through your journey from the mobile payment startup world to mobile gaming and now eSports at Skills?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So so yeah, 10 years ago, sitting in the audience, I was uh, at HBS, and and while I was at HBS, I started working at a, what at the time was a four-person, angel-backed startup with a really cool invention, and that was mobile self-checkouts. So this is 2009, first-gen iPhone, subsequent release of the the App Store. And my co-founder at, at Skills had Uh, had founded a company called Isle Buyer that was focused on enabling mobile payments for uh, large retailers, and and so think uh, self-checkout using a consumer smartphone. Um, We were building that business, uh, ended up building it to about 50 people. We had raised about $12 million, we were based in Boston. Uh, We were predominantly in the same space that, that Square was in, and so Square was going bottoms up in that market, and we were going top down. Square had raised about twenty million dollars. Then they raised two hundred. Uh, we had a, kind of an existential decision to make at that point, uh, with twelve million dollars been having been raised, and this our primary competitor with two hundred. Uh, we didn't control that business, and uh, and so we ended up running a process and transacting aisle buyer, and it became what is today Intuit Go Payment, which, in business school, everyone talks to you about the exit. They say, "What's your exit strategy?" And and so you kind of think that this is this is the this is what you're going for is the exit. And and from a financial perspective, in a lot of ways it is because the money was life-changing. But what Intuit wanted to do with the technology felt just so far short of where I thought the the overarching opportunity was. And so I left on the transaction, learned a valuable lesson about what motivates me and had been talking to the founder of that company about this idea he had in the gaming space. And and we saw several trends emerging at that time. Uh, One was that games were increasingly being played as sports. Video games were were kind of hitting that 50-year milestone that historically has been a really important milestone for, for games in general. So if you think about uh, football's invention in 1869 and the formation of the NFL 50 years later in 1920, or basketball's invention in, in the 1890s and the NBA formation uh, in the 1940s, it takes about 50 years for, for games to become sports. And so we saw that video games were were starting to be played competitively as as sports, and pairing with that, mobile was making everyone into a gamer. Now, they don't call themselves gamers. Uh, the term gamer tends to mean something very specific, but almost everyone plays video games today. And for me, I was, I was playing uh, Words with Friends in 2012, and I would think I was in these heated competitions with people on the other side of the world going back and forth, and I was like, I'm going to... I'm going to get them. And then they wouldn't make a move for seven days. Zynga would say, you won. And I had this sense of, like, I didn't actually win that competition. The person literally forgot I existed. And, and competition is what gives reason to the games that we play. And there's nothing so emotionally draining as thinking that you are you are engaged in a, in a competitive experience that you care tremendous about, about only to find out that, the, that your counterparty Care so little that they fell asleep or something, uh, and so so we saw these kind of the convergence, of these trends, and created a platform technology company called Skills. And that the the idea with Skills was that games video games are going to evolve in the same way offline sports have evolved where they start as games then they're they're played casually first then they're played competitively in player funded competitions and then ultimately brands become involved and bring the best athletes together to compete at the highest level and and brands pay for that to reach advertisers and so we we built this technology platform to enable any game to be played competitively with the thesis that we didn't know which games were going to be the most popular esports of tomorrow but we believed that the best games had yet to be invented. And so today, we power uh, several competitions and uh, for several thousand different mobile games. We run a couple million competitions per day um, and, uh, and just continue to grow. Got it.
2: So David, you started your career in the traditional sports world. Yep. Uh, with roles in tennis, uh, with golf, and racing, most uh, recently with NASCAR. Um, why the pivot to esports? Now I'm
4: sitting next to somebody who works for evil geniuses. There you go. I you're mean, how pretty badass is that? So, is that,
2: was that the reason for your pivot to esports? For sure. Um, for sure. So maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, what, um, you know, given your role at Riot, where you're leading branding and communications, what did you learn from sort of the traditional world of sports that you've you brought into to esports, and maybe what surprised you along the way?
4: Um, yeah, it's, I actually started studying. Um, Esports, uh, in my previous job, um, got really excited about it through my work as a board member at the University of Oregon um, in their sports business program, um, and really encouraged them to actually bring in students who are interested in the esports space. Um, so when Riot called about this opportunity, I was definitely intrigued. Um, I see it really as the future of sport, the way the fans consume sports through uh, the streaming apps, um, through everything that we're doing, whether it's events, um, whether it's creating content, um, it's it's an incredible, incredible space, and I think Casey touched on it a little bit that we're really just scratching the surface. That's Nicole's point is a good one, really, because she got in and and she knows that Evil Geniuses has a long run and that they're going to be at the forefront. Um, they're, they, they're somebody who's been around for a while. Riot's been around for 10 years, which is really just a drop in the bucket. We started with one game called League of Legends. Hopefully some of you have played that game. Um, and it's just grown into this global phenomenon. Um, now it's clearly the leading eSport. Um, it's attracting fans from all over the world. We, Turn around and suddenly, just hundreds of thousands of people are playing in Vietnam. You know, things like that are just happening. Um, so it's it's exciting. we we have 1,800 people in our offices in Los Angeles. We're about 3,000 worldwide, and we're just now introducing our second, third, and fourth games. So it's early. I think days. It's 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 early days, and it's uh, we're we're pretty excited, pretty bullish about it.
2: Well, in the, uh, in the battle of brands uh, between eSports leagues that are built around game titles and the eSports teams, uh, which are spanning multiple leagues, uh, who's best positioned to win the loyalty uh, of the players and ultimately the fans? Uh, why don't we start with uh, our team CEO? So Nicole, um, still early days in eSports. Should we bet on the leagues or should we bet on the teams and why?
0: The players.
2: The players. <laughs> no. Tell, um, us, tell us more. Yeah.
0: So. You see this in traditional sports, but even more heavily in esports. Just given that the content consumption and fan affiliation is really at the player level, um, organizations, you know, esports teams run like a collegiate athletics department. You have a parent brand with players that represent that brand, but people tend to be fans of players, and there's no transference across titles. So on the organization side, it's been a challenge for us that I've come in and really tried to tackle with what is the org brand that fans find affinity to beyond the players, because in esports players have high churn. So at retirement age, it's relatively early. It's a short-lived general window of competition and competitive play. Um, And it is sometimes a struggle to, especially if you have diverse brands where fans don't necessarily like to watch League of Legends and Counter-Strike. They tend to be fans of a player in a specific game. Trying to find that linkage factor to bridge that audience affinity is, teams are trying to figure that out.
4: I would amplify that as well. I mean, even though we are a publisher um, and we're creating a game that's amazing, our mission, our philosophy is player first. So to Nicole's point, they look at things through the player's lenses, so do we as a publisher. Um, Everything we do, the first question we ask is how are the players going to respond to this? How are they going to embrace it? They're our primary advocates and our detractors. So we look at our game is something that has to be appealing to players and has to be appealing for a long time. Uh, we're only in it for the long run. You know, we're not looking for short-term glory. We're not looking for profits immediately. We're looking to build something that's special. That's where the Riot comes from. Ultimately, Brandon Beck and um, Mark Merrill created a system at Riot Games in which it was free to play. They didn't like the way you would go out and have to decide between which games, which consoles you're using, and they went free to play. And they said, competitive integrity is first and foremost. The only way we're going to make profit is if the players want to give us money. And that's ultimately what they created, uh, a game that the $2 billion that uh, it creates during a year is through cosmetic skins primarily that are by choice. For the players to choose to use them, it's not impacting how they play.
2: And was this player-first approach was that is that different than you know other uh, you know developers like you know take Activision Blizzard with the Overwatch League? Like, is that was that were you guys taking a you know very different approach uh, you know to them in terms of you know how you um, sort of the, the, maybe the latitude you gave to teams versus you know what might be considered kind of more league-controlled? Like, tell tell us about the thinking
4: you know behind. Yeah, that, I mean, you know, you know, you know each. The one thing about esports that people, I'm sure Nicole and, um, and certainly Casey know, is that people like to put it into one bucket, right? But ultimately, you, you need to think of esports the same way you think of sports. Like, so people talk about, hey, should esports be in the Olympics? That's literally like saying, should sports be in the Olympics? Okay. You know, Because Overwatch and Fortnite, and League of Legends, and our upcoming Valorant, those are completely different sports, different in how they're run, um, different in terms of their fan bases. Um, but But our focus is just make sure that what we're creating is going to be lasting and that they'll they'll know that we'll stick with them. So the mastery of League of Legends is so high, it takes so long to be good. Nicole was just talking about her experience with it. She's undefeated, by the way, in League of Legends, just for the record. Um, It takes a long time to get good. You don't want your publisher bailing on you or suddenly changing in a way that dramatically impacts you. So our focus is on making sure that when we have a player that we provide them with such amazing value, they want to just keep coming back and back. Um, it's one of the beauties of our sport, too. Um, I was talking to Daryl Mori yesterday, and he was talking about how the analytics um, are tough in esports, and in particular League of Legends, uh, he used to run a team, Clutch Gaming, in our um, LCS, our North American League, because we change our game every two weeks. It's literally like we can change the game to impact it in a way that we think is a better viewing experience and better for the players. That would be like Adam Silver saying, you know what? Steph's hitting way too many three-pointers. I am going to pull the three-point line in two inches. We actually can do that. That impacts the sport and the playing field in a, in a very dramatic way. So uh, the games that we just were talking about, right?
2: League of Legends, Overwatch, you know, et cetera. Um, occupy the, the realm of PCs and consoles, right? Uh, and we're really talking about professional gamers and maybe Nicole's gonna become a professional gamer soon. Um, sounds like uh, League of Legends could, could, could be the answer for her. But um, how about for the rest of us, right? How about for those on, on mobile phones? Uh, and so Casey, I you know, wanna sort of direct this next question to you. What does skills, mean, uh, skills means by uh, eSports for everyone? Um, is the future of eSports really mobile?
3: Certainly, that's that's what we think, and we think the, the future. I mentioned mobile has made everyone or almost everyone into a gamer, and they don't they don't self describe as as gamers, but they play. And the notion of saying I'm not a gamer is akin to saying like I'm not a music listener, which no one would say. They would say they would answer, if you said Do you play? Do you listen to music? Someone would answer with a two vector response. So they'd say they'd answer with a, a question of frequency and intensity. So I listen to music all the time, or every so often. Uh, And I listen very intently, I'm an audiophile, or I have it on in the background while I cook. And and as a media form, that's how music is consumed. Gaming is the same thing. And so everyone now plays games. It's a question of frequency and intensity. And for people who play games, competition becomes the the logical next step of, of it is intrinsically built into the gaming experience. And so our belief was that. Uh, the the electronic sports ecosystem will mirror the offline sports ecosystem, where many more people will play than will play at a professional level, and and so you'll have sports that look like running, where the participatory uh, the participatory, participatory audience is is massive. So like if you if you ask the audience here how many of you play sports, almost everyone would answer with some form of the affirmation. They'd say like I. I run in the mornings, or I bowl with my kids, I golf on the weekends, I ski, but I'm not very good. But very few people would answer and say, like, I'm not a professional. I'm not a professional basketball player, so no, I don't play sports. And I think that's, today, if you ask people, do you play eSports, they, they will answer as though you asked them, are you in the NBA? And our belief in the creation of skills was that the... Very similar to, to Nike's motto of, like, if you have a body, you are an athlete. If you play competitive games, you are participating in esports. And so, Skills is predicated on the idea of creating competition that is broadly accessible for people who play any game and at any level and any skill aptitude. And so, everything in our, our business was designed to say, how do, we, how do we make this the most inclusive ecosystem possible from a player perspective of bringing those players in and from a developer perspective of saying, we don't know which games are going to have the popularity to become League of Legends, which is the most popular game, or are going to become the equivalent of Lawn Darts, which people play in the offline world, but there isn't a professional league for.
2: So David, what's Riot's take on uh, mobile gaming? There are like about 2.6 billion mobile gamers out there uh, around the world. Uh, but most of them are outside the US. Is uh, the future of eSports mobile, or is that just uh, an Asian phenomenon?
4: Um, No, we think it's very much a global phenomenon, and we have the mobile version of our game uh, called Wild Rift, which we um, showed to our fans at our 10th anniversary um, event uh, in October, a sneak peek. Um, When that will actually come online uh, will be TBD. Um, whether...
2: no, no spoiler alerts here? Or... No
4: spoiler alerts, but uh, you know, hopefully soon. Um, I'm excited about it. I was able to uh, do an early test and to capture the breadth of what makes League of Legends such an amazing game to play um, on a mobile phone is a huge challenge, but I think they, they nailed it. Um, you know, we probably, we probably missed the boat um, on mobile um, early. But we are focused on creating that experience um, with League of Legends through uh, the PC. Um, and, but we've seen that that's the future and agree that we'll be part of it. Um, certainly something that I'm sure Nicole and, and Casey know that that's going to be something that we're going to be a big part of in the future.
2: Got it. So Bob Iger, who until last week was the CEO of the world's largest media company, described his role simply as a brand manager. So let's ask our panelists how they are differentiating themselves in what's become a very crowded field. Uh, Nicole, what does it mean to be an Evil Genius? Um, How did you reinvigorate a brand that was founded in the late 90s, which I guess in esports time is pretty ancient?
0: Yes, it was um, interesting for myself coming in. Um, Evil Geniuses actually just recently went through a brand revitalization, which we've been rolling out over the next, we'll be rolling out over the next coming months as well where the challenge was to keep the best aspects of a 21-year brand and preserve that authenticity and the fan and player voice, while also well-positioning the organization for forward-looking opportunities. Um, Esports right now is very beholden to sponsorship, to partnerships, to broadcast and media deals, and making sure our brand identity is attractive to the types of brands we want to both work with as well as can afford to work with us, um, as was really critical. And during our brand revitalization, we looked a lot at how to not just hit table stakes, but differentiate in the market. So we actually took a very polarizing stance, we were one of the first movers to really carve out who we were and who we were not. And so Evil Geniuses are bold, are saucy, we encourage the individuality of our players. When when we were doing a discovery period, we were asking both our players and other players, what do you think of when you hear EG is coming to this tournament? And we had a reputation of a little bit of the heel, a little bit of the team to beat, but also a really strong legacy of excellence. So both how we operationalize that as well as how we represent that visually is in things that are different from the rest. We have very harsh lines, dark dark colors. Um, We encourage people to be a bit more saucy in their social. And that's It's kind of like the Harley-Davidson model, right, differentiated through individuality, which really is accessible to all, but it's still excellent, still top of the line. Um, And it's been interesting in reception of the space because we were one of the first movers to really take a hard, differentiated stance on we're not just a team that wins in esports, we're a team that wins and.
2: And and what was the reception? Like you know, coming out of the gates? Like, how did the fans react?
0: Very mixed bag. As I'm sure many people know, when you take a, a logo or a visual identity that's existed for 20 years and change it, there's always affinity and grumpiness that uh, subsequently comes up with that. However, in terms of the a lot of... The metrics we would look at for success in terms of followers, in terms of positive engagement, in terms of sponsorship dollars, it's been really successful because we can actually sell. And what a lot of esports teams struggle with right now is everyone's saying the same things. Oh, we have eyeballs and Gen Z loves us and we compete. But how do you actually articulate to especially non endemic brands why you should work with an esports organization for us to say, here are your values, and here's how, how our brand also reaffirms those values, and here's how we have the eyeballs and the market share that fuels this vision that you have? It's been really successful for us.
2: Okay. So, Casey, uh, Nielsen says that 77% of esports fans are male. But on skills players, the gender breakdown is I think roughly 50-50. Um, so how are you managing your brand, given your differentiated demographic?
3: Yeah, I, I think the, the flaw in Nielsen's methodology is they are saying, do you do you watch one of a half dozen games that uh, that involve you know shooting or you know they're, they're basically. They, they, the pinnacle of eSports today is has come to be defined and synonymous with the industry itself, whereas we, as I mentioned, believe that if you play games competitively, you are competing in electronic sports. And so half of our, about half of our players are men, half are women. We see, we, we see almost no difference across the player base in terms of income, education level. It's the people play different games but, but gaming and competition are ubiquitous. And, and that has been that's something that we we have to think very carefully about because the we do have a relationship with the players, but the players' first relationship is with the game, the game in which they are competing. And so the goal for us is to best enable the businesses in the ecosystem who are building games. On the on the platform, and we have a growing number of of game studios who are saying, "I want to build a competitive experience, and I'm going after a, a specific underserved demographic." and And so we we prioritize inclusiveness as a result of that, um, and and really try to work with the individual game game studios to to best enable them to define the brand that they want to have with their with their player base. And and for us, it's it's saying like if 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 you're interested in games, you should compete, and 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 that that really is that makes us maybe a little bit less uh, a le- little bit less of a consumer personality. I'd say the team the term esports for everyone, you know, our average player is playing about an hour and five minutes a day uh, on systems, so like more than. Uh, more than Facebook about what about what a Netflix consumer is doing, but they are self-describing as a non-gamer or a casual gamer, uh, and so esports for everyone is is really a business-to-business tagline more so than a consumer tagline, uh, and and we let the the consumer brands define the engagement that they want to have with with their end users. Great. Well, it's worth
2: remembering that esports really started as a marketing tool for publishers to build interest in. And fans of their various game titles, but now they, they really become a marketing tool for uh, leading brands outside of esports. So, which brands uh, do we think are going to win by getting into esports? David, uh, let me direct the first question to you. Uh,
4: I'll answer that right away. Mastercard, Louis Vuitton, Nike. <laughs> yeah. You want me to keep going?
2: Yeah. yeah well, so you. They're mean, all going to win. So you <laughs> mentioned. So you mentioned. Uh, you mentioned Louis Vuitton. Yeah, are there any brands in the audience, uh, David? Would love to talk to you. But tell t- tell us about. Um, uh, what you did with Louis Vuitton, so you built a special do they built a special trunk not only for the FIFA World Cup but for um, the League of Legends World Championship trophy known as the Summoners Cup, right? Yep. Um so why the why the partnership with the fame luxury brand?
4: so it was interesting what happened there as um, we struck an agreement we were introduced to them last year um, really MasterCard kind of unlocked for us, um, non-endemic brands, when they came on board in 2018, and we actually were talking to them for two years. Um, we were actually getting crushed by a lot of people out there saying, like, "Right, Games doesn't have a good BD department. A lot of other publishers were bringing in all these sponsors, but we were very clear that we weren't going to sell for five digits because we knew our product was worth seven plus, OK? so. We held back. MasterCard eventually came on board, and what happened was people like Louis Vuitton, Nike, and others realized that this was a sport they wanted to be part of. Um, Louis Vuitton came in through the door you just mentioned, which is, we'll do a trophy um, case, uh, similar to what we do with FIFA World Cup, but when they got to know us better, uh, they realized there was a deeper universe to play in. Um, so we worked with them in creating Louis Vuitton skins. We worked with them to create um, a capsule collection of merchandise. They provided custom-made watches for the champions of uh, the, the, the winners of the Summoner's Cup this year. And it kept going. Um, it was one of those things that, you know, all good partnerships are um, certainly a two-way street. And we were just tickled pink with the reaction, um, and just kind of saw that it was something that made for a resonant experience for our players. So right now, I'm currently maining Senna, and I have a Louis Vuitton skin, and it's pretty cool um, to be in the game, and you're watching this thing turn into this fashion icon, and it kind of covers up how bad I am in the game, so, you know.
2: So it's, you at least look good while you're playing I look right?
4: good you're while right? I'm losing. Yes,
2: it's okay. That's good. So So Nicole, how do you uh, choose the brands and sponsors that you partner with? I saw that you work closely with Monster Energy. Um, so you know why are you picking them versus, you know, let's say, a red bull? What are the the qualities? Yeah. That you're considering when when choosing partners?
0: Yes, definitely. So eSports teams are very beholden to sponsorships, and I'm proud to uphold the legacy of EG, which was one of the first eSports teams to ever sign non-endemic sponsors. So Monster is actually one of our oldest partnerships. It's nine years old this Ah. year. Um, And we look for brands that really, as I mentioned earlier, articulate and reinforce our core values. If you look at Even our endemic and non-endemic partners, Monster, Razor, AMD, they tend to be more of the counterculture, best-in-line product, but a bit more edgy rather than other brands per se. And it's good because especially since esports teams, like traditional sports teams, their most valuable inventory asset is oftentimes the players who have very limited time, right? We want them focusing on competing and practicing, not necessarily doing things for sponsors, making sure we diversify what we offer in regards to what we add in terms of value with partners, as well as find partners that understand our vision our expectations for working with our players and our org is really important. Um, So it's been exciting because we've fostered a really good diverse mix of partners that are more straightforward to peripheral partners, hardware partners, as well as partners that are more on the organizational development or business side um, or peripheral fueling of things that we use in the day-to-day life cycle as an esports athlete.
4: I think the maturation of the sport is reflected in her response because she's she knows full well that Red Bull is a sponsor of the league, and we have the ability to provide value to these partners, whether it's through the players, through the teams, through the leagues, through our events, in a deep way, and our, and our players respond to that. So one of the things that we're trying to do as a publisher is create several avenues for um, teams to be successful, players to be successful, and for us to be successful. So, you know, Red Bull is a sponsor for us. They're a sponsor G2, one of the top teams in Europe, if not arguably the top team in Europe, um, as well as one of our leagues in Brazil, for example. And so it's good to see that brands like Monster and Red Bull and others like it are coming in and finding enough value in, in this space To be able to rationalize the ROI in their spend. Right. So, Casey, let's talk about the offline
2: world. Um, How are you helping bridge the gap between sort of mobile and in-person events? Um, You did an interesting partnership with Bolero. Can you say more about the type of partners that uh, that Skills is uh, pursuing?
3: Sure. And and broadly, our thesis is that the offline and online worlds are on a collision course. That that the the, the digital enablement of the world the gamification of the world the proliferation of uh, you know motion trackers that you wear on your wrist the always on computer that you have in your pocket as a phone these are the these worlds are converging and so eventually just just as david was saying i think the you won't you won't call this esports you'll call it sports and there will be offline sports there will be online sports uh, and and those will coexist and 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 you'll have You'll have increasingly activities and in sports that that encapsulate uh, versions of or, or attributes of both. And so we we recently did a partnership with Bolero. Bolero is uh, the largest operator of bowling alleys in North America. So they uh, they own the majority of, of bowling alleys. They also own the PBA, the Professional Bowlers Association. And our partnership with them, you know, their their interest is in extending their bowling brand to consumers both at their bowling centers and outside of their bowling centers. And so the way that you can participate in the sports ecosystem is as a fan or as a player, they want to create They want to create that experience on a player and at a fan base for both digital and physical world. So, so we connected them with one of our game developers who will be releasing a Bolero bowling game. They're going to be hosting electronic sports competitions at the bowling alley. Uh, at the bowling alleys themselves, with prizes that include things like lane time, free shoes, arcade gift cards, uh, and then consumers will be able to play in those competitions uh, at home as well. and so so the 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 sport is still bowling, and there's an electronic version, there's a physical version there are uh, there are venues where people get together and participate in uh, in these competitions and whether you're participating by Grabbing a, a ball and lobbing it down some planks of wood, or grabbing your phone and and participating in a digitally simulated version of that, the it's it's all part of this this brand the bowling brand for them. And so we're, we we did that partnership and have a number of other kind of similar uh, offline brands that are interested in in that type of extension. So this
2: being in the uh, Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, we should probably quickly get to how data can set your brand apart. So unlike the on-field, on-court, and on-ice sports, eSports are played entirely online, so generating terabits of data to analyze. Nicole, now I understand that you've built one, if not um, the only in-house data science team within an eSports team. Is that right?
0: We're probably one of a few of this size, as well as the application for us. Data is really important. We have full-time data science team, as well as engineering team and BI team, that all kind of use data to help inform decisions. And this might seem well, it hopefully should seem obvious to most other mature industries, but it's relatively new in the space of esports, despite being a digital platform. And part of that is just because the there wasn't money available for esports organizations to really flesh out more laterally in the past, but also we're beholden to developers for a lot of data, which make access to some of this underlying platform variable by what developer or what platform we're competing on. Um, But we've had a very big and so far successful initiative to not just diversify where potential revenue can come from, but also inform decisions on the competitive side, on the roster construction side, even on the sponsor side, how we use our reach and how our competition uh, works to really define and articulate strategy, um, which we're doing all in-house versus outsourcing. So it's been early stages. I've been in this. We've rolled out this initiative about eight months ago, and we're growing. But so far, it's been really interesting and a great value add, especially on the sponsor and BI so, so side. So what
2: what edge are you giving either your business executives or your players, like? You know, with the, with with this in-house data science capability. Yeah,
0: there, there's a there's a definite mix depending on how you want to apply it. I think the most uh, linear application is uh, in gaming. Um, we have some platforms that you you know, cannot emulate elsewhere in the space where you know we can predict, predict uh, positional movement on a map by capturing like live feed and image recognition, and then we can use predictive analytics to figure out okay, we're playing this team. They might draft these characters there, and we anticipate them to move in these directions on the space so this is how we set a strategy and that's not something you can currently buy in the space nor is it provided by a developer it required a lot of uh, bootstrapping and building um, in-house, um, and that's really tangible value for us in constructing how we draft pick and ban during certain matches. Um, more broadly, on like the business side, being able to provide information, especially to non-endemic potential spart- uh, partners or sponsors who don't really understand esports yet or don't really understand why they would derive value, the more specific and bespoke with targeted information on shared either customer bases, um, or demographics or uh, geographic regions has been helpful, because even though that sounds obvious, we're a relative first mover for that in the space.
2: Okay. Well, David, Riot has partnered with Nielsen to bring viewership metrics, uh, such as average minutes audience, or AMA, yep. um, to eSports. Uh, tell us, what 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 is AMA? And why are such metrics so important to marketers? And what other metrics uh, are you using to really Drive and, and, and build uh, fan engagement?
4: Yeah, so um, we're real proud to be part of the industry that's moved toward the average minute audience, which is, as it says, it's what your average is during a single minute during a match. Um, and in moving away from kind of the bigger numbers that sound great and we were able to at least use, but then it becomes an arms race. In fact, uh, the student who actually ran this conference here, Greg Kim, who now works for Nicole, um, he was part of the team at Riot who really pushed to get a metric that would allow us to compare ourselves and work with partners who are interested in traditional sports as well. Uh, so the AMA is a common uh, metric used for almost all uh, traditional sports, and we felt it was an important. So, so this year, you know, we, we crushed it in the World Championships, the biggest event we've ever had um, in Paris. And, you know, we were at a 21.8, um, which is a massive number. But we were out there before, and people were saying 100 million uniques and all this kind of stuff. And um, so we've kind of netted out on that. The other piece um, with our partnership with um, Nielsen and others, um, Sport Radar, um, Bayes, um, is that we also are looking at a more comparable um, metric to, uh, to the viewing experience. So we call it Live Plus, um, because as you know, our audience, um, they're watching the sport in a very deep way. They're watching it live, but then they're also going back and looking at VODs, and particularly honing in on a player on Evil Geniuses or somebody who's playing for Cloud9, and will watch that video again and again. Um, and really derive a lot of deep content that way Um, so we are working with them to identify so it's a more clear measure of the consumer experience that's not just that kind of quick hit on the Monday morning which makes traditional um, sports analytics experts uh, quiver in their boots when they're getting like what's that number coming out the day after ours is going to have a lot of really positive trailing metrics because the fans consume it in a much deeper way. So um, many of the students in the audience here today,
2: I'm, I'm looking around the room here, are here because they are looking for the secret to getting into the business of esports. Um, so you know, Casey, I heard that the engineering team at Skills, which is, is, is led by a woman, mm-hmm. um, is 33% female, which is more than twice the ratio at Uber and higher than at Apples, Googles, and Facebooks. You know, tell us about your approach to talent and skills, and, and how that's maybe different than you know other esports organizations.
3: Yeah, and I, I, well, I'll tell you about I'll tell you about what Skills is doing, and I, I
0: don't want
3: to, I don't want to opine about whether, what other companies are doing. But so we we actually take a very analytical approach to hiring, and it's predicated on quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of aptitude testing. And so the idea is saying if you if you take any job and you deconstruct that job. In The required skills that that you need to be successful in that job how can you measure someone's aptitude in each of those for each of those skills and so traditional interviewing involves take you take a panel of people and say you're going to go talk to this person and try to assess whether they would be good at this job and often those people have if you take five people are going to have five relatively redundant conversations. Our approach is saying, let's let's deconstruct into five skills, then figure out how we're going to test for those skills. Then, as we hire people over time, we're going to learn where our testing makes sense and and leads to positive outcomes, and where if we said, hey, we're, we're you need action orientation for to be successful in this role. If we if we end up hiring having someone who's a bad fit and they we, they didn't have action orientation, we say, well, what what made us think that this person was going to have that attribute, and and where did we go wrong? And so the the traditional behavioral based way of interviewing ends up being pretty flawed because companies will will will. Kind of uh, commingle the what it looks like to be an engineer with what makes someone good at engineering, and so if you, you know the, the Billy Bean uh, quote of like we're not here to sell jeans, right? You look at someone, you say, is this this person look like a baseball player? That same thing happens in engineering. Does this person look like an engineer? And more often than not, the what our stereotypical vision of an engineer is doesn't isn't reflective of what someone's actual skills are and so the certainly we try to hire diversity but the the composition of our engineering team is is driven by our ability to to hire analytically as opposed to hiring candidates because they have the right degree or uh, have the background that we think is going to make them good at their job and so if other companies are are using cultural fit as a euphemism for leadership Bias that actually gives us a competitive advantage in hiring because our compensation offers are going to be based on purely on aptitude rather than uh, rather than than some uh, notion of background or ethnicity, gender, or some other something else that's completely uncorrelated with someone's ability to do the job.
2: Yeah. Well, Nicole, when you traded the uh, board seat for the CEO hat, what what changes? Uh, did you bring to uh, Evil Geniuses and on, on how you build teams, how you sort of recruit and develop talent? And I'm referring to not just your business executives, but your your players as well.
0: So uh, building off of what Casey said, we have a similar approach. And it might surprise the audience that I don't look like what you would expect a gamer to look like. Um, but that's the, the Evil Genius way. We we hire on, on merit, and what we do to promote inclusivity and diversity on both players as well as um, staff talent side is we have a very high bar, and we make sure the doors are open and accessible to everyone. And then you go through the same rigorous hiring process that you'd go through on other places. Um, Our mission statement is actually to make people want to work at evil geniuses, and the nuance there is that the brand itself has a prestige, and the infrastructure and the reputation to bring in excellence so we can make things that, especially in the esports space that didn't exist before like maternity and paternal leave 401k with match you know we go to colleges and do career fa- affairs we just look for initiatives to bring in talent and showcase that anyone could find a home and work well on the competition side or the staff side at EG and I'm super pleased like in my year here with We've grown quite a bit. We started from 12 FTEs to now we just broke 75 in my past year, um, and we have now a leadership team that is 50% female, which is not through looking for females; it's through looking for the best and building a positive reputation. We have some of the most LGBTQ and non-American players, and we really foster excellence and inclusivity across all scales of the business um, through merit and excellence.
2: Are you know, bringing? Uh, a different set of folks, you know, into, um, into eSports, uh, into the business of eSports. Tell, tell us a little bit about yes. how, like, you know, again, if, if you're looking at this audience here, um, are you recruiting, you know, MBAs or, you know, folks from traditional sports? Give us a, a flavor of that composition of the, you know, 60 or so people that you hire?
0: I'm glad you asked this question because coming in not from eSports, I got a lot of, the space is young, so it's a little bit gate-kept on, well, gamer culture and eSports culture, but that is a self-perpetuating cycle that I'm looking to really grow and exceed the table stakes today. So my leadership team is a mix of people that both have been born and bred in eSports, as well as come from MBA programs. I'm gonna put Greg Kim on blast again. We as a poached hire, was an MIT grad. Um, that comes from a data background. Um, We have people that come from FinTech. We have people that come from um, large corporations in tech and engineering. We have a mixture of very prestigious college grads as well as some leaders that actually haven't gone to college at EG. And through hiring with a very like metric and scorecard driven approach, um, we've found really good success in bringing in a great depth and breadth of skills and um, backgrounds to the table that you didn't really see before in other organizations, so that's how we really operationally try to differentiate to make sure we can get the best of the best wherever they come from. Because new ideas coming to the table are what helps us innovate.
2: Great. So before I jump to the audience questions, uh, I want to uh, talk a little bit about geography. So David, um, what are your thoughts on geolocation or geoaffiliation to generate fan interest? Um, do you think this is necessary, or that teams already have you know a, a, a strong connection with their fans?
4: Um, I think more the latter. Um, I think geolocation can definitely work in eSports. We've successfully uh, built um, the most successful geolocated league in China. Um, So our LPL league has 17 teams. Um, Top players are making two, three million dollars a year. Um, We're playing in six different cities. Uh, Obviously not now. Um, But you know, we're also a digital sport, so we're about to launch on Monday. We're gonna restart the season in China and it's gonna be online only. So that's one of the beauties of of eSports. I do believe um, some other leagues have different approaches that may work for them. Um, Our philosophy is we're gonna build a global sport, but we're gonna let the regions have um, the ability to customize for their audience. So North America, is a different type of league right now. um, The teams are all based in Los Angeles. Um, Is there a world in the future where they would move to different cities in North America? Possibly. China made more sense initially, and that's why it's been super successful. Um, Europe will be interesting to see if there's a potential to do country-based. But right now, we're still, um, making sure that the teams are successful. If you start flying people all over and all that kind of stuff, the, the costs skyrocket. Um, right. So our philosophy has been let's build an ecosystem where the players first and the teams can be successful before we go too far too fast. Um, and I believe that that has proven to be a successful formula. Got
2: it. So we have some active uh, questions here uh, from the... Uh, the, the, the Twitter group, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to those. Um, uh, so This is an interesting one. What do you think will be the key in bridging the gap between yearly fan spend in eSports, which uh, they approximated at $5, and fan spend in traditional sports at $700? Who wants to take that?
4: So we are I'm not sure where the data is coming from. Yeah, this, inter- this is, this is a interesting u- piece, user generated. But um, audience generated. keep in mind that the gaming space is way bigger than the sports space, just to be clear, and bigger than the movie industry. You know, it's, it's a huge, successful, deep um, area. People are spending money in uh, hundreds of different ways. Um, I think the the, the the crux of that question is really around um, generating income through events, um, esports. We've been focused. You know, I can speak for ride Games. We've been focused on making events very accessible. We don't, you know, have super expensive tickets. Our events sell out literally in minutes online. But we're not gouging the customers because we're still trying to grow the base, right? We want to get to a point where. People understand it before we start getting down those revenue uh, channels. Again, we, as I mentioned earlier, we held back on sponsorship because we felt like the game needed to grow um, organically before we started injecting partners into it. Now our fans see that they actually bring massive value and do things like trunks and in-game skins and things that really provide value to them. Um, so I think the same thing, true is on media rights. We We just... We haven't really gone down that path yet. So um, traditional sports is built a lot on the media rights deals that they have in place. That's just something we've wanted to build the fan base first before we've moved. But I think over the next few years, you're going to see some pretty impressive numbers. Um, The first one in our world came out of China. Um, It's not officially announced yet, but uh, Billy Billy is going to be moving toward a partnership with us, um, starting with Worlds this year, and it's going to be pretty significant. So start with the product first; the media will follow. Correct. Got it. Yeah. So um, another. So part- for example, yeah, um, I know you know we shared today that we're doing a, a TFT showcase, uh, our new set with our auto chess game this week, and it'll be on Twitch, it'll be on YouTube, it'll be on numerous other channels because we want people just to to see what it's like, and then we'll learn. At some point, obviously, you're seeing a lot of movement in the streaming space. It's really cool, and it's providing opportunities for players. Um, It's providing opportunities for streamers to go exclusive. Um, So it's a space that you know certainly the two of us here, and, and Casey as well, are looking very closely at. So if players are the focus, how do you work to transfer the
2: allegiance to younger players so that you don't lose fans as players retire? Nicole, I'm sure you're thinking about this. Yeah,
0: of course. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, it's something that a lot of eSports organizations are candidly trying to figure out. Um, if you look at teams, that, especially in North America, exist today, and then even more so globally, the big brands where a lot of fans follow are those that have won. Like. But having a brand that's tied to win-loss is a very risky move, especially from my perspective. And so for brands that are trying to differentiate in the space by finding other ways to build allegiance, I think 100 Thieves is another esports org that really has leaned into the retail, the streetwear, the aspirational cool. Um, you know, G2 is our, our European counterpart, more of the villainous figure, the more punchy. And you see that some of these organizations are really trying to flesh out a mission statement that resonates not just with players don't want to compete but also the fans as well um if the i think the question touched a little bit of like why do younger players want to come to an org or is it just, or just how
2: them? do you transfer allegiances to like you know your younger players right as you know as you bring new new players to the game
0: Oh, yeah, so and also I think this is the secret sauce of each team, right, is the reputation in the space with your talent, right, why would a player want to compete at an org like EG, the perks beyond just cash in hand, as David mentioned, are... I wish I was a professional League of Legends (laughs) player because I'd make a ton more money than I make now. Um, But there's a lot of other levers, right? Especially given the diverse set of interests and nationalities and representation that you find in the space. So we've actually, an experiment that I had carried out that now is institutionalized and has been successful is a lot of the perks that you would find at a traditional big fintech or tech company, we rolled out. And the initial pushback I got was, players don't care about having like CPAs provided or don't care about wellness initiatives, but PT, uh, nutritionists, um, sports psychologists, um, financial guidance, those types of factors actually really resonate not just with players, but for the younger players, their parents and their agents, which has been really critical for us showing difference in the market and attracting talent beyond just competitive skill and cash in hand.
2: Got it. one other question here. As mobile gaming and esports continue to grow, people are already looking towards the Indian market as the next frontier. What steps, if any, are you taking to enter this arena?
3: Casey, is that... Which market do you India? Say? India? India? Yeah. Yeah, it's... India is... is we're predominantly uh, U.S. Our, our player base is predominantly U.S. today. I think we we certainly think of India as, as one of the most attractive markets to enter, and it's really been a function of... As a startup, you you pick your battles, um, but but we certainly think we think India is going to be absolutely massive, and so it's as we think about replicating, we have a we're a two sided marketplace business. So there's a there are content creators and there are consumer end users, and the the trick to entering a new market is you need both of those things concurrently if you're in our business to in order to enter. So you need you need both content and uh, and players, and so you don't really want to go halfway in. Uh, and, and so we're, I would say, I, I, can't, I can't say too much about exactly what we're doing there, but I, I would say it's, it is very much at, uh, at the forefront of our thinking. And, uh, and it's, it's been something we have chosen not to enter in a, to not to back into, but rather to go headlong into. And so we'll, uh, we'll be there quite soon. Great. Uh, so we just have uh, a minute or two left before we wrap. So
2: I'm gonna ask each of our panelists to name an esports brand outside your company that you admire, and tell us why. Uh, Nicole, when you start, we'll go down the line. Yeah.
0: Um, in terms of other brands I admire, I think there are there's one other team. It's European based, called G2, that does things fantastically and has existed for a long time. And um, we seek out in terms of who we like to emulate and mirror brands that do things ethically as well as keep competitive excellence at the forefront. So. If you're a sponsor, still come to EG, but uh, G2 is a good brand as well.
4: (laughs) I would say um, really impressed by the work of Alienware to build out um, their kind of gaming-focused product line. Um, It's incredibly intuitive. It's really spot-on in terms of understanding the gaming space. And they've created a brand that I think really says gaming but they're in the dell company so they have the umbrella to have an impact i think far beyond gaming as this thing grows what about you casey
3: so i'm i'm an entrepreneur building a kind of bottoms-up belief they have this bottoms-up belief in the in the sports ecosystem and i think one of the ironies of esports is that we are many companies are trying to take a top-down approach so if you look at how uh how companies like activision are are launching their overwatch league they're starting as a professional organization and and so i have a lot of admiration for for the bottoms up approach and and i think riot's done a great job of that but i think you know the a brand that comes to mind for me is is tsm and so i look at the the origins of solo mid and they started not as a professional team but as a community uh a, a, a player community and so i i tend to admire that bootstrapped build from the ground up uh, even in an industry that is now awash with venture capital. Great. So that's uh, all the time that we have. Uh, thank you so much for
2: uh, participating. Uh, why don't we give a big round of applause to our panelists. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.